Amen. Wonderful. We are going to uh, continue doing some stories from John. Uh, and today we're going to be in John chapter 8. Uh, it's quite a well-known story. We're going to look at this. And then we're just going to ask a few questions after the story. What do we think God might be saying to us? And then we're going to have communion together. And we're again going to have a chance just to welcome the Holy Spirit, to be open to what God wants to do. We've had a real sense all weekend of the activity of the Holy Spirit. And we're expecting to keep seeing that happen. I just felt as the um, prophetic working party was being plugged, I just felt, Hannah, you should go. Uh, Lara, I, I just felt you should go to the prophetic working party this afternoon. I feel God wants to speak to you. And um, Stephanie. So, uh, and I also, I felt there's someone here today, I don't even know what it is, Cronin's disease, is that a thing? I feel like God wants to heal someone here today from that. So please, can I pray for you afterwards? And um, we are expecting a real kind of opening up of things again. Uh, it's not that the preaching is just to kind of fill time until we do the ministry time. <laughs> but we are expecting an opening up of things again in the Holy Spirit. Um, we're going to look at this story uh, in John chapter 8. We've been looking at some stories from the Gospel of John. Uh, about Jesus encountering people. And uh, one of the things we've said is that John talks about the Word became flesh, and that we keep seeing that in the Gospel of John. Seven times in John's Gospel, Jesus will say something that starts with, I am. So I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and life. I am the good shepherd. But then he also, he makes those things real in individuals' lives. So he says, I'm the light of the world. But then he actually heals a blind man. So it's not just conceptual and cosmic. It's personal and concrete. He says, I'm the bread of life. And then he feeds 5,000 people. And in this story, we're going to see, actually, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. But here we're going to see what it looks like for the shepherd to step into the situation of a vulnerable woman and to protect her from the wolves. And so we're going to see that happening here. And this story, there's a woman who's dragged out in front of everyone and accused. And you've got this crowd of men kind of around her, baying for blood, going, let's stone her. Like, she's terrible, let's stone her. So there's a horrible kind of dynamic at play here. This woman in the middle of this circle and all these men just kind of baying for blood. And what Jesus does is quite remarkable. He, he will turn the attention of the crowd away from the woman and onto himself. So he turns the anger of the crowd. Instead of, they start off angry at her and they want to stone her. But by the end of the story, they're angry at him and they want to stone him. So he's, he's di redirected the anger of the crowd away from her onto himself. But also, he redirects the attention of the woman away from the crowd and onto himself. And then in the end, he says, woman, where are they? And she looks up and they've all gone. And so it's a wonderful picture of how Jesus steps into our lives and, and chases off the enemies and transforms situations. That's the story that we're going to look at now. So, John chapter 8 and verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again 
to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses, us, Moses commanded us to stone such women. It's such a dismissive kind of such women. So what do you say? So this is a trap that they're trying to form to trap Jesus. Let's explain. The context is, this is the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles has been going on since chapter 7, and it goes on all the way through to chapter 10 in John. And the final day is a Sabbath day. So it's a Saturday. It's a day of rest. It's the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is one of the pilgrimage festivals where people came from all over the nation of Israel up to Jerusalem and all piled in. It's quite a small city, but they all pile in by their hundreds of thousands for this festival. And so the city is rammed. You can't move. It's just full of people. At the same time, the Roman legion, so a Roman legion is 5,000 soldiers who are normally based on the coast in Caesarea in their kind of military capital. Whenever there's a big festival in Jerusalem, all the Roman soldiers decamp and come up into the city because they know that if there's going to be any kind of independence movement, any moment where there's going to be a revolution where the Jews try and throw off the Roman oppressors, it's probably going to happen on one of these festivals when everybody's come up from the countryside, when there's this kind of atmosphere in the city that's crackling and angry and nationalistic and religious, right? So all the Roman soldiers move up into the city, and they're based. You've got the, the temple courtyard, this kind of massive open space, and then they, they built a little fortress on the edge of the temple, and they put all the Roman soldiers in there, and they'd stand up on top of the wall and look down into the courtyard because if anything kicks off, it's going to kick off in the temple courtyard, right? Because that's where people gather and talk about ideas and talk about how much they hate Rome and all this kind of stuff. So that's the scene. It's early in the morning. The city's full of people. Jesus has come in. He's in the temple courtyard in this space, and people gather around to hearing his teaching. And the Roman soldiers are all standing up on the wall looking down, and going, if anything kicks off, if there's any kind of outburst, any violence, then we're all going to kind of come down and squash it. Does that make sense? So you can feel the tension crackling. And then, can't you? I can feel the tension crackling. Pete can. So, in the previous chapter, the, the Pharisees have had enough of Jesus, and they send the temple guards to go and arrest Jesus. But what happens is the temple guards go to arrest him, and they hear Jesus preaching, and they come back and they go, he's amazing. We've never heard anyone talk like him. We're not going to arrest him. We think he might be from God. So the Pharisees are a bit like, oh, man, that didn't work. We need another plan. What if we can get the Romans to arrest Jesus? That's a great plan, right? And so the trap that they set up is this. They bring this woman caught in adultery, and they say, according to the law of Moses, the Jewish laws, she should be stoned to death. Jesus, what do you say? And it's a trap because if he says, yeah, let's stone her to death. Let's do it right now. And they take up stones to stone this woman. 
the Roman soldiers are going to see that as a, you know, the Jews don't actually have the right to put anyone to death. It's a Roman prerogative. So they're going to see that as a kind of an act of violence, an act of rebellion. And the Roman soldiers are going to come down and they're going to arrest Jesus for instigating an action. Okay? So if he says, let's stone her to death, the Romans are going to arrest him. If he says, no, the law of Moses isn't important, actually, let's just ignore it, let's let her go free, then all the religious Jews who take the law seriously aren't going to follow him anymore. So the Pharisees win either way. So that's the trap. Okay? Either the Romans are going to arrest him, or all the religious Jews are going to stop following him. So they've trapped Jesus in front of everyone, and everyone's watching. Now... The woman, she's just being used in this situation. No one talks to her. No one asks her what she thinks. No one asks her if she's guilty or not. At the end of the story, when everybody else has left, Jesus will talk to her, ask her a question, humanize her, hear her voice, hear her opinion, draw something out of her. But right now, these people, they're just using her. And they say the law says this woman was caught in adultery and we should stone her. Actually, the law in Deuteronomy doesn't quite say that. What it says is if a man and woman are caught in adultery, they should both be brought into the public space and stoned to death. So where's the man? Where is he? We're going to look at that a little bit later. Got a couple of ideas. But the point is this. They're not actually caring about the law. Because if they were, they'd be reading it properly. And they're not actually caring about the woman. They're just trying to trap Jesus. So they're misusing the scripture and they're misusing the woman. Because all they want to do is catch Jesus to protect their own reputation and authority because he's threatening their popularity. They want to get rid of him and carry on with the status quo. Right? Okay. And so, verse 6. They said this to test him, as we've just seen. That they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus... So they want to test him. Are you going to choose this or are you, going to choose, are you going to say yes or are you going to say no? Jesus, like we saw yesterday, resists those binary choices. If you say, Jesus, are you A or B? He's going to say, I'm something completely different. A different category, like water and wine. It's not this mountain or that mountain. It's by the Spirit. Completely different. He will resist your binary, okay? And so Jesus bent down. And wrote with his finger on the ground. Jesus, are you going to say yes or no to stoning? Jesus goes. He bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him, Jesus, oi, look at us. What are you? Shall we stone her or shall we not? Shall we obey the law of Moses or shall we not? Jesus, this is a test. Everybody's waiting. What should we do? And Jesus is like. 
what's going on? Why is he doing that? Apart from just to annoy them. (laughs) As they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then once more he bent down and he carried on drawing on the ground. Okay? Right. What's he doing? What's he writing? What did he write? There's loads of theories about what he wrote. We don't know. If we were supposed to know, the Bible would tell us. We don't know what he wrote. Okay? Why is he writing? Well, it's the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, um, there are lots of things that you're not allowed to do. But the Jews had this very clever system of getting round all of the laws and making life workable. Because if you actually obey the Sabbath laws, you can't actually do anything, right? So they had this really clever list of rules that, that told them the things they were allowed to do on the Sabbath that got round the things that they weren't allowed. I'll give you an example. If you go to Israel today, in the hotels, they've got elevators. Now, on a normal day, you can press the button and go to whichever floor you want. But on the Sabbath... You can't do that because pressing the button in an elevator to get onto another floor in the hotel is considered work. You can't go that far. So how do you get to your hotel room on the Sabbath in Israel today? Well, they have a Sabbath setting on the elevators, which sets them so that they're constantly just rotating by themselves between floors. So it comes to floor one, the doors open, they close. Floor two. So all you have to do is step into the elevator. You don't have to do the work. So it's a workaround, right? It's clever. Now, there was a workaround about writing. So writing on the Sabbath was not allowed. It's considered work because you're creating something permanent. You weren't allowed to write with a pencil. You weren't allowed to write on pottery. You weren't allowed to write on the Sabbath. But... The list of the laws of workarounds said you are allowed to write in the dust. Because if you write in the dust, then later you can just rub it out and it's like you never did any work actually. So God isn't actually going to be angry at you. So what Jesus is doing by writing in the dust on the Sabbath is he's saying to them, you're trying to trick me about the law. I know the law better than you. Look. I know. I know the law. I know all the little details of the law. I know what I can do and what I can't do. This isn't an issue of obeying the law or not, of understanding the law or not. But there's something else that's wonderful, right? Jesus, who is God, is with his finger writing. The Ten Commandments, the law, were written and given to the Jewish people by the finger of God. So Jesus isn't just going, I know the law better than you because I'm a clever guy. He's going, I know the law better than you because I wrote it with my finger. How dare you try and trap me and trick me. I authored this law with this finger. The other thing that happens when when they're all shouting and angry and trying to get the crowd going and trying to create an incident, and he just stops and silently writes in the dust, is he slows everything down. He takes all the temperature and heat and anger out of the situation. 
They're trying to get it worked up. They're like, come on, let's create an incident. Let's get the Romans to go. And he just slows it all down. By just hesitating and waiting and doing nothing. And there's a wonderful wisdom there. You know, we keep seeing in these stories also a piece of wisdom from Jesus in a difficult life situation. If you're in a situation where you are being forced into making a decision and there's pressure, maybe a work thing, maybe a family thing, maybe a health thing, maybe, you know, we've got to make a big decision about moving house or, you know, and and you're feeling this pressure put on you by external voices that are rushing you to do something. Think about Jesus here. He just slows down. He buys time. He takes the heat out of the situation. They wrote you a nasty email. Don't reply straight away. Sleep on it for a day, a couple of days. Just slow down. Just slow down. I also think, if we know anything about Jesus, he was probably angry You know, the righteous anger of God. He's angry because they're misusing scripture. And he's angry because they're misusing the woman. And he's angry because they're trying to trick him and pressurize him. Maybe he slows down to take his own anger out of the situation. Why not? Righteous anger. Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, he was in New York when 9-11 happened. And um, he observed uh, the speed with which America wanted retaliation, vengeance. They wanted a scapegoat. They needed to go and hit something because they were so hurt and so angry. They needed an enemy to go and hit. And Rowan Williams in his memoir, talking about that situation, talks about this story. And says, if only there'd been a moment of just crouching down and hesitating and waiting. And um, he says, Jesus hesitates. He does not draw a line. He does not fix an interpretation. We all should hold that moment for a little longer, long enough for some of our demons to walk away. One of the things that Jesus is angry about is the misuse of scripture. The other is the misuse of the woman. We're going to look at those. Firstly, the misuse of Scripture. So they're quoting a verse from the Old Testament to try and trap him. But they're, they're actually only half quoting the verse. They're taking it out of context, and they're just kind of pulling a verse out to proof text. Now, you know you can do that. You can pretty much justify anything you want from the Bible by just pulling a verse out of context. And we call it proof texting. Like, you can prove anything you want. Just pluck a little verse out of somewhere, right? And um, that's not how we read the Bible. And it actually, in this story, it makes Jesus angry, and he wants to respond to that. He's like, no, 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 you can't do that. And um, he can't stomach, I believe, the kind of legalists who pick and choose which scriptures they care about and ignore other scriptures. You know... When Jesus is tested by the devil in the wilderness, it's actually the devil quotes scripture to him and says, oh, if you throw yourself down, you know, it is written. Jesus says, yeah, but it's also written. Yeah, so even the devil can quote scripture 
You know that, right? Like in your head. You don't just need to know it is written. You also need to know it is also written. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with The West Wing, uh, the kind of TV show. I really enjoy it. Uh, but there's, there's a moment there where one of the politicians is quoting an Old Testament verse out of context to try and make a law out of it, okay? They just take an Old Testament verse and they're like, you see, we should have a law about this. And the president, Bartlett, just kind of goes crazy on them. And I'm just going to read it because I think it's great. Uh, just uh, respond with how stupid it is just to quote a verse out of the Old Testament out of context. How nonsense it is. He says this. He says, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. She's a university graduate. She speaks fluent Italian. And she always clears the table when it's her turn. What would be a good price for her? While you're thinking about that, can I ask you another? My chief of staff insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says that he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to phone the police? <laughs> Here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Does the whole town really have to come together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different kinds of thread? Think about those questions, will you? What's happening here? It's really important for us, okay? There's a misuse of scripture. You can't just pluck verses out and wave them around. But more than that, the Bible's not a flat book. We don't read the Old Testament and the New Testament in the same way. Because we are no longer under the Old Covenant. We are under the New Covenant instigated by Jesus. We're not under the law. We're under grace. Is the Old Testament the word of God? Yes, it is. But it's fulfilled and transformed in Jesus. As we saw on Friday night, he turns the water into wine. The water for washing, the old covenant, into wine for drinking, the new covenant. It's completely different. We're no longer under law. We're under grace. And we can make so many mistakes by reading the Old Testament and thinking that we are under it. Now, the biblically astute among you will quote your favorite verse, Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Aha, the legalist's favorite verse. What did Jesus mean when he said, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets? He meant, I've come to fulfill all the blessings that the law promises for righteousness. And I've come to fulfill all the curses and punishments that the law promises for unrighteousness. And absorb it all into myself at the cross. Focus the whole story of the Old Testament 
into the cross the death and resurrection of Jesus so that the curses for unrighteousness are put an end to, buried in the ground, and the blessings are released to all the nations and all those who call themselves by the name of Christ, regardless of what we've done, right? And so he's come to fulfill, not to abolish, through his story, through his death and resurrection. And friends, we're no longer under the law, but under grace. Can I get an amen? amen? An amen with a little question mark? A confident amen? amen? How about these verses? Romans 6.14, you are not under law, but under grace. Romans 7.6, but now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. And Galatians 5.18, if you're led by the Spirit, you are no longer under law. There's a whole new thing that Jesus has come to open up, a whole new covenant in his blood. So many terrible things arise from misuse of Scripture, and particularly misuse of Old Testament Scriptures taken out of context. So many terrible things that really upset us. Yeah, slavery was justified for centuries by Genesis 9.25, the curse on Ham, Noah's son. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And there was this twisted understanding that Noah's son Ham went to Africa and therefore everyone from Africa was under a curse from God to be the servant of servants. It's unbelievably horrendous use of scripture. Shocking. Apartheid in South Africa was justified by the Dutch Reformed Church all the time through the book of Joshua. Like, let's keep blacks and whites separate, just like Joshua told the people of Israel to keep Jews and non-Jews separate, no intermarriage, no intermingling, live in separate areas. So much environmental devastation has been caused by Christians in the name of progress, misunderstanding the verbs in Genesis 1.28. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. Putting too much force and man-centricness into those verbs. Today, hundreds of millions of dollars pour from American Christians who want to pour their money into Israel because they think it's a chosen nation. And it goes into the right-wing Israeli Defense Force and is used to kill and oppress Palestinians, including Palestinian Christians. Shocking use of the Old Testament, horrendous outcome. Some churches have overplayed ideas of don't touch the Lord's anointed and you end up with a sort of unaccountable leadership that's abusive and is enabled by the congregation because there's this sense of you can't touch. This is horrible stuff. The Bible is a powerful book and if it's misused, it's still powerful. And so you can see why Jesus is angry in this story and we need to be so careful because that's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees are doing. They're misapplying scripture in order to protect their position of power by getting rid of Jesus. But I also think Jesus is angry about the misuse of the woman. In fact, I think in this scene of this woman surrounded by these angry men, I think there's a, a triggering moment for Jesus when he thinks about his own mother. Because Mary was pregnant in a very conservative village without being married 
and the law said that she should be stoned. And Jesus is, if you like, adoptive father, Joseph, actually stepped into that space, said, I'll take responsibility, even though it's not my child, I will marry Mary. He needed to have a dream of an angel to do it. Men sometimes are a little bit slow on these things. You know, that's why men see more angels than women, right? We just, we need the prompting sometimes. <laughs> and so I think there's something about this scene, even in Jesus' own story, where he's like, man, this is horrendous. Verse 9. When they heard it, he said, if you're without sin, cast the first stone. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So he's, he's crouched down. He's stood up and said, cast the first stone. Then he's crouched down again. The woman's standing before him. Everyone else is gone. It's empty. It's early morning in the temple courtyard. The sun is rising. There's Jesus and the woman, and it's empty. Jesus stood up, and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Where have they gone? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So we've thought about the misuse of Scripture. Let's just think about the woman for a moment. Where was the guy? Where was he? Like, she was caught in the middle of having adultery with someone. It takes two for a tango. Where's the tango partner? Where is he? Right? The answer I find most compelling is that possibly he was a Roman soldier. She's a Jewish woman. He's a Roman soldier. A lot of Jewish women ended up living with Roman soldiers as a form of protection. Because the Roman soldiers in the land were brutal, like stealing, raping, taking whatever they want. And so actually, living with someone gave you a little bit of protection against this lethal, brutal, violent oppressor. All the way through history, that has been a thing. When there's a foreign force in a land, there's often been women who've chosen to ally themselves with that foreign force as a way of protecting themselves and perhaps their families as well. Sociologists call it voluntary rape. It's a, it's a horrendously difficult decision that the vast majority of us have never had to contemplate, but a way of protecting yourself and your family. We have to keep remembering when we read the Bible, that it's not a sexualized world in the way that British culture today is so sexualized. When we, when we read sex in the Bible, we think it's about choice, it's about consent, it's about pleasure, and, and everybody has the freedom to make whatever choices they want. Most places in the world, most times in history, and certainly most of your Bible, sex is never like that. It's often about survival. 
It's often about making difficult decisions. And so we've got to be slower to judge people, as we were seeing yesterday, and quicker just to feel the, the challenge of being between a rock and a hard place. This has always been... And so Roman soldiers were exempt from Jewish law. They only faced Roman military tribunals. So that's why they, if they've dragged the woman in, they can't drag the guy in, if, that, if this is the, the case. This has always been an issue. American soldiers in the Philippines living with local Filipino women out of the military bases there. Often there's then been stories of abuse or rape or violence or murder, but the American soldiers are not accountable to the local courts. And it's caused great uproar, right? I think this is real. I think like with the Samaritan story yesterday, there's a history of judging this woman, but it's more charitable and more realistic to consider her as someone who didn't really have a choice or only had to choose between two really hard choices. And so we've got slower to judge and quicker to sympathize, to try and understand. Which, by the way, is a great skill for all Christians. Slower to judge, quicker to try and understand. Why is this person doing this? You know, in parenting, one of the most helpful things that was ever taught us, I won't often speak on parenting because I don't think we're very good parents and you don't want to learn from me. But we've got four kids, four different stories, right? One of the most helpful things that was ever said to us is behavior is communication. So if your kid is acting up, they're trying to say something. So rather than just slapping down on the behavior, try and understand the communication. Where's it coming from? What are they saying? Okay, you're welcome. <laughs> now, it may be that you're here today and somehow you identify with this woman. Um, maybe you've had a really difficult hand dealt to you in life. You've made choices that you're ashamed of, that you regret or choices that you wish you hadn't had to make or that you feel judged for. I don't know, maybe you smoke to manage your stress and you think, oh, Christians don't like people who smoke. But actually, no one understands the stress that you've been through. And if they did, man, the smoking is the smallest thing, right? Maybe your mental health is really broken and that's what people see and you feel so guilty about your depressive or your suicidal thoughts, but people don't understand the, the trauma or the abuse or the backstory of how you've got there. And so you feel judged. Uh, people probably aren't judging you, but you feel judged. You feel shame. But if people could just ask the question, why, why, why is it like this? How did we get here? There'd be more understanding. And so Jesus says, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her, which is a wonderful thing for a church community to always think about, isn't it? Slow to judge. And it's the older ones who put the stones down and walk away because the longer you live, the more you realize how messed up you are. And so often, as in this story, if you think of this woman and then all these kind of religious, powerful men around her. So often it's the powerful who judge those with less power. It's the sorted who judge those who have messier or chaotic lives. It's people in the center who judge those who are at the margins, or it's the majority who judge the minority. And so we just feel that in this 
story. No one spoke to the woman until Jesus did. He asked her a question because he wants to hear her voice. He wants to draw her voice out of her. And um, just finally here, Howard Thurman, who was an African-American civil rights Christian activist in the 1940s, he says this about this story. And we'll end with this, and then we'll ask, what do we learn? Okay? This is how Jesus demonstrated his reverence for personality. He met the woman where she was. He treated her as if she were already where she now willed to be. In dealing with her, he believed her into the fulfillment of all her possibilities. He stirred her confidence into activity. He placed a crown over her head. This is lovely. He placed a crown over her head, which for the rest of her life she would keep trying to grow tall enough to wear. The grace of God. So what do we learn from this story? Just a few things. Number one, we're not under law, but we're under grace. I've been trying to remind us all weekend. You know, John 2. Jesus turns our water into wine. He takes us from a religion that's about external washings to a religion that's about internal drinking. Yesterday, from John 4, it's about a person, not a place. It's not a religion that's centered on the temple in Jerusalem and all its laws and systems, centered on the person of Jesus. Not that mountain, not this mountain, worshiped by the Spirit. Amen? The law stops at Jesus. He fulfills it, he buries it, he abolishes it, and he releases its blessings to us on the other side of the cross. Secondly, from this story, the accuser is always Satan. You go, no, no, the accuser was people. Yeah, but Satan, the word Satan means the accuser, the one who spits lies and accusations. He's called in Revelation, isn't he? The accuser of the brethren. And um, this woman's story is our story. At times, we are on our own, vulnerable, on our knees, and surrounded by the devil and his demons spitting lies and accusations at us. Ah, you should, you're terrible. Ah, you're rubbish. You're the worst Christian I've ever seen. And I've seen quite a few. Yeah? And the devil is just there in our heads surrounding us like throwing accusation at us. And what Jesus does, what Jesus does, essentially, he says to the woman, you don't have to try and fight this crowd. You look at me. You look at me. Oh, woman, where are they? Oh, they're all gone. Jesus fights the battles for us, not us. If the devil's in your face, don't try and fight him off. He's stronger than you. You look to Jesus. Jesus is stronger than him. Amen? That's why in the scripture we have the Lord rebuke you, Satan. It's a great prayer. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. And um, that is the best strategy, is to turn the devil's attention away from you and onto Jesus. Because when the devil's looking at you, he's going, yeah, you're rubbish. And you can go, yeah, I know I'm rubbish, mate. Yeah? But if you get him to look at Jesus... He, he, he needs sunglasses, right? He's blinded, like it's Jesus. The devil can look at you, he can't look at Jesus. The best thing you can do with the devil is turn his attention onto Christ. Best thing you can do when you're attacked is worship. This is how I fight my battles. Yeah? Bit of theology in that song. Right, 
Number three, we see in this story again an impulse to protect the vulnerable. We see the shepherd, we see the wolves, we see the vulnerable, and we see Jesus moving towards it. And by the end of the story, instead of wanting to stone her, they're wanting to stone him. The end of uh, chapter 8 of John, it says, they picked up stones to stone Jesus. He's turned their anger away. There's an impulse in us. I will speak out for those who have no voices. Power sensitivity is not just a 21st century phenomenon. Jesus was very sensitive to these dynamics and always moved towards the vulnerable. And then finally, we see here this, this woman. In all three stories that we've seen, John 2, John 4, and John 8, we've seen that Jesus has used this word woman. He's said, woman, where are they? Woman, what? Woman, what am I doing? And it's, just, it's a weird word, but he uses it six times in the Gospel of John. And John is using it as a cipher, as a symbol of Jesus coming and searching for his bride. He talks about Jesus as the bridegroom. It starts with a wedding. And he's going, woman, I'm calling you out. I'm calling you out of your old life. I'm delivering you from this attack. And I'm bringing you into my family. He doesn't actually marry this woman, of course. Jesus never got married. But he brings her metaphorically to himself to be his bride. He's, he's searching for his bride. And he's calling her forth, woman, be free. Come and be with me. Let's be together. John does that all the way through this gospel. And when you see deliverance and dignity, and he calls forth her voice. So this story is our story, like all of these stories. And Jesus steps in. He makes his word flesh in our stories. And isn't he wonderful?